This message was recorded at the Billy Graham Training Center at The Cove in Asheville, North Carolina. Through the ministry of The Cove, we're training people in God's Word to win others to Christ. It's our goal to develop Christians who experience God through knowing Him better, knowing His Word, building godly relationships, and helping others know Him. We trust that this message will strengthen your walk with God and help you experience Him right where you are. Okay, we're in chapter 8 and... uh... 18, I'm sorry. Well, same thing. <laughs> Dyslexia. Um, we're going to see that the high Christology all the way to the end. You know, um, we're going to see long scenes with Jesus and one other person. We're going to have whispering asides, uh, all those things um, that are unique uh, to John. Okay. So in verse eight or chapter eighteen, verse one. When he finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now, it's it been explained to me that in Jesus' day, it, it's a grove of olive trees, but it's also a big place where the a, almost an industrial complex where they there's a press there, and they press the olives to make olive oil and that sort of thing. So it's a big. Uh, big operation. Um, now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove guiding a detachment, and that's a technical military term, spuria, which is, uh, indicates from two to 600 people. So this isn't just a ragtag group of uh, soldiers. Now, I had always thought that these were Roman soldiers, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But Craig Keener, who have a tremendous amount of respect for, says that they were temple guards. So if you have to choose between me and Craig Keener, I suggest you choose Craig Keener. Uh, he's, but uh, I'm going to show you in a minute why I think they're, they're pagan soldiers, because they, they, they do something uh, that the Jews wouldn't do. But for the first time when I was looking at the parallel passages in Mark 14, Judas uh, had instructed them that when they arrested him to take Jesus away under guard. Judas said that. Do you remember, do you remember that passage? I hadn't remember ever seeing that passage. So I mean, it, it sort of amps up his complicity. So not only does he betray him, he gives orders to the guard to, to, to when they get Jesus to take him away. Uh, that's Mark 14, 44, to take him away under guard. So here comes Judas. Um, Judas um, came to the grove deta- guiding a detachment of soldiers with some um, officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. That's that, two, that unlikely group that have come together uh, that otherwise would have not you know, been together because they, they hated each other. They were carrying torches lanterns and weapons. And what does that mean? What does that detail mean? It's a full moon, by the way, uh, because it's Passover. Um, It means that they're expecting a search, I think. They've got lanterns and torches. They're expecting to find Jesus cowering under some bush somewhere, okay? Um, So they're all two to 600 people with... uh, the Jewish leadership and Judas are probably at the front, and they're expecting a search. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is, you, who is it that you want? And they apparently don't recognize him on sight. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I'm he, or I am, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. So G- Judas is just right there. Listen to this response. I think this is, this is interesting, and this is where my the, theory about the soldiers comes in. When Jesus said, I am he, two things happened. They drew back and fell to the ground. I think that's the, the soldiers draw back in, military, in a military sense because what do they think that has happened? They think they've walked right into an ambush, right? It's dark. They've got their, their, their weapons ready, and the very guy that they think they're going to search for walks right up to them. And so when, when Jesus says, it's me, they fall back. But if indeed Jesus manifested the, the divine name, the priest would have fallen down. So I think that, 
that describes those two. They fall back and fall down. Um, um, they drew back, I'm sorry, in a military sense, the soldiers did, and the Jews fell to the ground. At least that's my, that's my read. Again, he asked them, and they're down on the ground. I like to picture this. Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I told you, I'm he. Jesus answered, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. So he's being protective of, of the, the 11. This happened so that the words he spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. And if you've been, he said that in 639. And if you've been listening, you realize this is the very first time that it's been said that his words were fulfilled. Something he said actually happened, okay? Um, the very first time his words have been fulfilled. And in just a minute, that's going to happen again. Now, we know in Luke 22, um, Luke around 35 to 38, I've got a little sidebar story about this. <coughs> I'm studying with William Lane. I'm about 20 years old and still very, you know, uh, just kind of in awe of him. And we're talking one day after class, and I said, Dr. Lane, is there any verse that you don't understand? And he laughed, and he said, of course, there's a lot of verses I don't understand. I said, what bothers you the most? So he says, Luke twenty two thirty five, 35, where Jesus sells, tells his disciples to sell their coats and buy swords. So that has always really bugged me. So I'm 20 years old, and you know what I do. I decide... I'm going to figure that verse out. Okay, So I spend years, I mean years, working on this verse, looking at all the different references to swords and what kind of words or names are used for swords and you know the whole thing um, the, and, and when Jesus said it and what the context is. I mean, I, I wore it out. I was always looking for an answer to that. So jump ahead about, I don't know, 25, 30 years. He moved uh, to Franklin to die. Uh, he called me from Seattle, Washington, and he said, I don't want to die here. He had multiple myeloma, uh, and they'd given him six months to live. And he said, uh, can I come to Franklin and show you how a Christian man dies? So he moved down with us, and he lived 18 months, and he was teaching the Bible right up until the end, which is awesome. So anyway, I'm, so I have the privilege of driving him around. I take him to get his EPO shots and take him to the doctor, and I'm kind of his chauffeur those, those last uh, several months. And very casually one day I said, remember when you talked about Luke twenty two thirty five and how you didn't understand that verse? And he remembered everything. He said, yeah. I said, I think I figured it out. Oh, really? He says. <laughs> I said, yeah, it's simple. Uh, I said, what you have to consider is the sendings. There's two sendings in Luke. He sends them out originally only to the lost sheep of house, the house of Israel, but that second sending in chapter 22, he's sending them out into the Gentile world. And I said, and they'll, they will be staying in Gentile inns, Gentile inns. And uh, sort of, I quote Josephus and Tacitus and all these people that talked about how, how um, uh, dangerous Gentile inns were. And, um, and I said, I, I think he's, he's giving them the, the right to defend themselves. Not to attack anybody, but they're going to need a sword. It's a dangerous Gentile world, and so I think that's, you know, that's, that's, what, that's what's behind that. And he didn't say anything. He didn't answer, and it really it hurt my feelings. So a couple of days later, I was taking him somewhere, and I said, I just got to tell you, you really hurt my feelings. Because I, I had spent so long trying to figure that verse out. And he got a little twinkle in his eye, and he said, I think you may have something there. <laughs> <laughs> But all that is that that's what happens right here. Peter, so we know from Luke that there two of them have swords. That's one of the mystery of that passage when he tells them about buying swords. The disciples say, we've got two. So there's two of them that are carrying, so to speak. And, uh, and Jesus says, that's enough. And we don't know what that means. That's enough swords or that's enough I don't want to talk about it anymore. We don't know what he means. But uh, Peter, there's two people with swords and guess who draws theirs? Peter is the one who draws his sword, and uh, that's one of the reasons I'm so, I'm so proud of Peter. Somebody did something. I know it wasn't part of the plan, but um, so um, where now I've lost my way. Um, uh, there it is, verse 10. 
Um, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. What's that? Eyewitness detail. It was his right ear. Um, The servant's name was Malchus. Now what we're going to find in these closing chapters is John has intimate knowledge of Jerusalem. John knows that the high priest's servant's name was Malchus. When uh, Jesus is being held at the high priest, John knows the girl at the gate who lets him in. She won't let Peter in, but she lets John in. John knows her. And he, he, he knows people. He knows people's names and that sort of thing. And Clement of Alexandria, one of the church fathers, said that, um, I don't know if it, this was based on fact or he was theorizing, but he said Zebedee had a fish market in Jerusalem. And John had sold fish there, so he knew people. That's a, I think that's a pretty good idea. So we'll see that he has intimate knowledge, but that's right out of Clement of Alexandria. Um, <coughs> so Simon Peter takes off Malchus's earlobe, and Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Then the detachment um, of soldiers, this is a phase that's left out of the synoptics, Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him. And that's one of the things he prophesied when they were walking from uh, in Luke to Jerusalem for the last time, that he was going to be tied up. They bound him and brought him first to Annas. Now, Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Caiaphas has been high priest for an inordinate amount of time. And before he was high priest, Annas was high priest. So it's it's a political family. And the marketplace that used to be on the Mount of Olives before it got moved into the temple court was called the Bazaar of Annas. So the money, this, the, the, he's basically skimming off the top. He's a rich and powerful man. And he gets money from the temple marketplace. That's, it's, it's called the Bazaar of Annas anyway. So they take him to Annas' house, and they're going to hold him there while the Sanhedrin is, is called. Now, it's against the law for them to meet at night, but they're going to break all kinds of laws. So um, let me see. I got a note here. (coughs) Oh, yeah, I'm just going to outline the the trials for you. It's very simple. There's a Jewish trial, right? And then there's a Roman trial. Each trial has three parts. This is so easy. This is so easy. So let me give you uh, the outline of the the Jewish trial first. Step one is he's taken to Annas' house while the Sanhedrin is summoned. That's step one. Step two, before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin at night, uh, which is again is an illegal meeting. That's in Matthew 26, 57. And then the third, third one is a, a daylight sort of mock trial or this just to, um, it's just kind of a fake trial because they already decided what they're going to do with him. That daylight trial is just to seem to be, uh, you know, following the, 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 the guidelines. And they concoct a charge of blasphemy um, because Jesus had acknowledged he was the son of God. That's in Mark 14. Uh, but the Romans don't care about that, right? So they, they concoct this uh, charge of sedition against Rome. And that's in Matthew 27. Okay, so, but anyway, three, three steps in the Jewish trial. They hold him at Ennis's house. They have a midnight or late night uh, Sanhedrin meeting that's illegal. And then they have a, a meeting... Um, in the morning, okay? Because here's the deal. Well, I'll get to it. When we talk about Pilate, we'll, get, we'll talk about it then. The Roman trial also has three parts, and it's real easy. He's taken to Pilate. Pilate finds out he's from Galilee. He sends him to Herod, and then Herod sends him back to Pilate. So that's real easy. Okay, so two, two trials. Each one has three parts. Okay, Simon Peter. This is uh, 1815. Simon Peter and another disciple, who's that? John. Uh, were following Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest. John knows him. Why? He's been selling fish to him. Okay? Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside. We don't know who you are. The other disciple who was known to the high priests, he said it twice, came back, spoke to the girl on duty, and brought Peter in. So Peter would have never gotten in if he didn't know John, and John got him in. Surely, listen close, surely you are not another of his disciples. And what does that mean? 
That means that John is there as an acknowledged disciple of Jesus, right? Are you another of his disciples? And Peter's going to say, no. So John is there as an acknowledged follower of Jesus. And when he brings Peter in, Peter denies Jesus. I'm not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire they'd made to keep warm. Peter also was standing there warming himself. It's March, but it can get cold in March. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. <coughs> I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. He's making a point of law. This is right out of the code of Maimonides. And we, he's already made this point that he can't be condemned on his own testimony. And you know, a lot of our legal system has been brought in from Judaism. A lot of our basic ideas about first and second degree murder and that kind of thing, we get those from Judaism. So makes a point of law. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the faith. Is that any way to answer the high priest? He demanded. And Jesus said, if I said something wrong, speak up about it. But if I spoke the truth, why did you hit me? Then Annas, so that was the preliminary scene in Annas' house. Then Annas sent him still bound, he's tied up, to Caiaphas, the high priest. And uh, John omits that, that step. As Peter stood warming himself, he was asked again, surely are you not, you're not another of his disciples? And he denied it, saying, I'm not. Listen, this local knowledge. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man. He knows that people are related to each other, okay? Intimate knowledge. A relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off challenged him and said, didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Now here, we, we've got to go to Luke 22, uh, I think it's verse 6. Because something amazing happens. Luke lets us know that uh, where Jesus is being questioned, he can look across the courtyard and see Jesus. And when Peter made that third denial, Peter looked over and Jesus was looking at him. And it's that word that I talked to you about earlier, emblepo. Jesus is the, the, it's a word that's used to describe the way Jesus looks at Peter. And the first time he looked at him, he gazed at him knowingly and you know, said, you will be Peter, that business. Well, now again, Peter, Jesus looks over, or Peter looks over, and Jesus is looking at him. And Luke tells us that that he broke down. That's what broke him. And he went out and wept bitterly. When you think about the two people who, deny, who betrayed Jesus, because Peter really betrayed him as well as Judas, uh, what's the difference? The difference is, Peter wept and repented, and Judas tried to fix it, right? He threw the tried to give the money back, tried to fix it, but Peter just wept. And uh, I think that's a, that's a big difference. So Jesus, he looked in Jesus's, turned in, in, in Jesus is looking right, uh, right at him. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. This is Pilate. We know a lot about Pilate. Uh, they found an inscription with his name on it at Caesarea uh, Maritima. Um, and let me tell you a couple of stories about Pilate so you have a little background. Pilate, when he first came into Jerusalem, he refused to remove the Roman soldiers' standards. Their standards have images on them. The soldiers, um, their, their uh, legions are named after usually an animal. Um, and they, on, their, on their standards, they have the head of, a, of the Caesar or some sort of an image. And when they're on the road or when they're on the, in the field, they worship their idols. Okay? Well, when Pilate comes into Jerusalem, he sets those up all around. Well, how do you think that went over? Right? How do you think that went over? That's the first thing he did. Um, so he refused to remove the Roman standards. Um, the Jews hounded him. 
all the way to Caesarea. So he went from Jerusalem back to Caesarea, which is where his headquarters really was. He only comes to, to Jerusalem when there's a festival and there could be, there could be trouble. Okay? He doesn't stay there usually. Um, so they hound him all the way back to Caesarea. Um, he meets with them in the amphitheater and he says, if you don't leave, I'm going to kill you. You're going to be executed. The Jews all get on their knees and bare their necks. He said, okay, cut our heads off. And Pilate caved in. So that's one, that's one very telling story about Pilate. There's another story about Pilate, and this is all in Josephus. Uh, he stole money from the temple treasury to build an aqueduct into Jerusalem. The people rioted. Uh, and what he, he did, he had the soldiers dress in plain clothes. They infiltrated the crowd. And then he gave a signal, and they threw their coats off and started killing people, started slashing with their swords, and many hundreds of people were killed. So that's another little insight into Pilate and what sort of person he is. And the final story is um, because of mass executions in Samaria, um, Tiberius ordered him back to Rome. And while he was on his way back to Rome, Tiberius died and Pilate just disappeared. We don't know what happened to him. Some people think he committed suicide. But that's Pilate. And what you need to know is, and I used to think this is so complicated, it's really simple. He wants to be rid of Jesus. And you'll, you'll see this really clearly in John. Jesus is just kind of a pain in the side for him. Uh, he, he can, he'll, he's he, he's going to do everything he can to get Jesus off his plate. And the other thing you need to know about a Roman uh, person from, he's, he's actually from the equestrian class, but he's still a, obviously a very powerful person. The Romans had what is called an organized day of leisure. An organized day of leisure. What that, what that means is I get all my work done by about 7.30 or 8 in the morning. And then I go to the baths, have a soak, and maybe exercise a little bit, have a rub down, go eat, go back to the baths. It's a day of organized leisure. That's how Pilate and Roman aristocrats live. He gets all of his work done in the morning. And so he wants Jesus out of his way as quickly as possible. Okay? That's, that's Pilate. And Peter, in his sermon in, in Acts, Peter tells the, the, the Jews, Pilate had decided to let him go. You know, Peter said that. I'll give you that, I'll give you that uh, reference when we get to it. Okay, so we're uh, 1828. Uh, Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. This is the Praetorium. It's Herod's old palace in Jerusalem. Now it was early in the morning, and to avoid, avoid ceremony and uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat Passover. Remember what I told you? Jesus, they had Passover already because they're Galilean Jews. The Judean Jews are going to have Passover that night. And you know what that means? That means... The, at the, precisely the time when they are sacrificing their Passover lambs, Jesus is hanging on the cross. I mean, I can imagine as Jesus is hanging on the cross, you can hear the sounds of lambs being, uh, you know, sacrificed. That's almost too much, isn't it? So they don't go in <coughs> because they want to maintain their, uh, um, their uh, ceremonial cleanness. And you notice, um, John doesn't tell us who Pilate is. He doesn't, need a, he doesn't introduce him because he doesn't need an introduction. Pilate is actually already part of the creed. There's a creed that, uh, uh, where's the reference? 1 Timothy 6.13. Pilate is already, and of course he, he ends up in the Apostles' Creed, right? Pilate. So, Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? Let's get this over with. What are the charges? If he were not a criminal, they replied... We would not have handed him over to you. That's not a charge, right? Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Uh, let, me, let me go to my little list here. These, these are how many times Pilate pronounces Jesus innocent. Um, that was the first one. Tells the high priest, there's no basis for a charge, you take him. In verse 14, Pilate reiterates that neither he nor Herod find a reason for a charge. Uh, in Matthew 27, 19, Pilate's wife sends word not to have anything to do with this innocent man. She's been having dreams about Jesus. 
In verse 20, Pilate appeals again to the crowd. Uh, In verse 22, again, Pilate appeals to the crowd. He will punish Jesus and let him go. You see, he's bending over backwards because he knows that Jesus is innocent. And that that statement of Peter is in Acts 3.13. Peter himself says, Pilate had already determined to let let Jesus go. And, by the way, the thief even says that Jesus is innocent. So so where was I? Oh, here we go. Um, Take him yourselves and judge him. But we have no right to execute anyone. So you know that's what they're there for. The Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled, and that is that he would be lifted up. And that's the second example of his words being fulfilled. He's going to be lifted up because that's how Romans uh, kill people. And I have, let's see, did I bring my notes on crucifixion? Yeah, I have, I have a few things on crucifixion. Uh, Josephus refers to crucifixion as the most wretched of deaths, and he saw people get crucified. In fact, when Jerusalem was destroyed, uh, when the Romans finally broke through, he, he got in there and, and rescued two of his friends who were being crucified. One of them died, but two of them uh, lived. Um, Constantine outlawed crucifixion in the 4th century. 71 BC, Spartacus, during the revolt, the slave revolt, uh, 6,000 people were crucified all along the Appian Way. And the the Romans are making a point when they do this. They always put people in the most uh, public place. Alexander, uh, when he took, uh, after the siege of Tyre, he crucified 2,000 people. Uh, Simon ben Sheta, uh, crucified, who's a Jewish guy, uh, crucified 70 sorceresses in Ascalon. In 4 AD, Varus crucified 2,000 Galileans from Sepphoris, and that was about three miles from Nazareth. Basically, the year right around, Jesus born, is born between 4 and 6 BC, so right around the time he's born, uh, 2,000 people are crucified. And in 267 B.C., uh, Alexander Janias crucified 800 Pharisees. Uh, I have some quotes if you're interested on... Um, Tacitus, who is the greatest Roman historian, says, Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. They were fastened on crosses, and when daylight faded, were burned to serve as lamps by night. Nero did that in his gardens after the fire of Rome, he crucified Christians all the, way, all the way around his garden. And when the sun went down, he set them on fire. Human torches for his party. That's Rome. This is uh, Miletio of Sardis, about 190. These are you know, ancient descriptions of crucifixion. He who hung uh, the earth hangs there. He who fixed the heavens is fixed there. He who made all things fast is made fast upon the tree. The master has been insulted. God has been murdered. The king of Israel has been slain. Um, Plato refers to crucifixion. The just man will have to endure the lash, the rack, chains, the branding iron in the eyes. And finally, after every extremity of suffering, he will be crucified. And so we'll learn his lesson that not to be, but to seem just, is what we ought to desire. Desire Sounds like our time. Not to really be just, but to seem just. That's what you need to do. Quintilian around, um, I don't know, still early, mid, mid-first century, says, whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen, where the most people can see and be moved by fear. Cicero, the great or- orator, said, the very word cross should be removed uh, not only from the person of a Roman citizens, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. You know the word excruciating? The root of that word is cruxus, cross. Um, yeah, I've got a lot of quotes. I'm, I'll just read those. That's, that's probably enough. Um, I'm lost. Here we go. Where was I? Thirty-three. Yeah, 
33. So we're, we're back, 1833. Pilate then went back inside the palace, um, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, once again, he's not asking for information. He doesn't care. Trust me, he doesn't care. Are you the king of the Jews? So maybe sar sarcastically. Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Do you think I'm a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Let's get this over with. And Jesus said, and this is a new idea for me just today, looking at it, I saw this for the first time. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, Pilate said. Okay, my, my new idea, he should have been charged, right? He's got a confession. He, you know, the, the um, Pilate could have used this confession as a charge, but he doesn't because he knows Jesus, he knows he's innocent, okay? That's the first time I've, I've ever seen that. Um, Jesus says, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And you hear, I've heard, you know, these people, that Pilate's wistful question, what is truth? He, he asks the question, turns around and walks out. What is truth? He turns around and walks out, okay? He's not going to wait for an answer. What is truth, Pilate asked. With this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. That's the second time he declares Jesus to be innocent. But it is your custom for me to release to you <coughs> one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Um, and there are no other ancient references to this custom. And some more liberal scholars will say this is just something that uh, the Gospels made up. But just because we don't have another ancient reference to it, that doesn't mean... You know, it's, it didn't actually happen. So don't let those people rattle you. Um, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Now, you know he's just trying to, he's prodding them with that, right? They shouted back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. And in Matthew 27, 16, Barabbas' first name is Jesus. Bar Abbas just means the son of Abbas or the son of the father. So um, wouldn't that be interesting if his name really, if his name was Jesus, there's two people both named Jesus. No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in the rebellion and he had already been convicted. So he is genuinely guilty of what Jesus is being falsely accused of. So the guilty guy gets free, uh, goes free and the, the innocent person, uh, is crucified. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flog. Okay, how many times was Jesus flogged? You're going to say 39, right? And then I was going to go, false, eh, false. 39 stripes is synagogue discipline. And Paul talks about the 39 stripes. Um, where's my reference? 2 Corinthians 11. The Jews didn't flog Jesus. The Romans did. Uh, synagogue discipline is administered with rods. 39. It's supposed to be 40, but you take away one for the mercy of God. And what Paul is actually doing is bragging. Right? He's bragging. That's part of his you know, true blue Judaism. That he actually been beaten in the synagogue. But the Jews didn't flog Jesus. Uh, the Romans did. And the Romans have one stipulation. It's in the code of Julian, the Julian code. It says one thing about flogging. It says a man will be flogged until the flesh hangs from his back. They don't count the stripes with a Roman flogging. Uh, Cicero saw uh, someone be disemboweled by flogging because the flagrum will wrap around your stomach and it literally rip people open. Uh, Tacitus mentions seeing someone's insides, seeing their internal organs after they'd been flogged. And a lot of people didn't survive the flogging. Okay, So Pilate has Jesus flogged, hoping that's going to satisfy him. I mean, he's going to be a bloody mess. And then maybe they'll let him go. Maybe then, you know, when they see how horrible that is, uh, it'll all be over. So then, and, and Jesus, by the way, is still innocent. He still hasn't been condemned. He's flogging them to please the crowd or to, to appease the crowd. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. 
The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in purple and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, O King of the Jews. Remember the pictures I showed you of those game boards that were scratched into the pavement? One of the, there are 70 ancient board games that we know of that the Romans played. They love board games. One of the board games was called King. Um, you know, when you're playing checkers now and you go all the way across the board, what do you say? King me. King me. Okay, same thing. And they would uh, roll knuckle bones, pig knuckles, instead of dice, and they would move their men around the board. And at one point, it would be robed. At one point, he would be crowned. And then finally, you know, you king, you win. And there's a lot of people, and I think it's a pretty cool idea, there are a lot of people who think the soldiers are basically playing that game with Jesus. They're crowning him, they're putting a robe on him, you know, and calling him king. So it's their, he's almost literally as a pawn that they're playing with. Uh, it's an interesting idea. So they clothed him <coughs> in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, O king of the Jews, and they struck him in the face. A better translation is they kept giving him blows with their hands. So they kept hitting him. So he's been flogged and now he's being beaten. Now this is the third time Pilate tries to let him go. <laughs> Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no basis for a charge against him. And he just had him flogged. There's no basis for a charge against him. Um, when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns in the purple road, Pilate said to them, here's the man. That's ecce homo in Latin, right? Behold the man. Uh, and I think he's trying to, to stir up their pity, but they don't have any, right? Their, their blood is up. So here's the man. As soon as the chief priests and officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, this is the fourth time he tries to get him, let him go. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. Here is a Roman official handing Jesus over to mob violence. This is unheard of. You know, the Pax Romana, that was the thing they were proudest of. We come to your city and we're going to set up Roman law and stuff like this doesn't happen. And uh, Pilate's letting go of all that, and it's going to catch up to him eventually. Um, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. Now, Son of God is a title that Caesar took on the coinage he's referred to as the Son of God. If Julius Caesar was proclaimed a God, then the, the other Caesars were the son, son of God. And that gets his attention. Listen, listen to what John says. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. Because what happens? If word gets back to Tiberius that there was a Jewish person claiming to be the Son of God and I didn't do something about it, this could be bad for me. And something like that actually happens because of his violence against the Samaritans, word gets back, and he's called back to Rome. So the thing he was afraid might happen, happened. Okay? Just like the, the Jews are afraid the Romans are going to come tear down the temple, though that happens. They weren't paranoid. That was you know, likely to happen. So when Pilate hears that Jesus claimed to be son of God, which is a Caesar's title, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace and uh, he asked Jesus, where do you come from? My note says, maybe he's expecting to hear heaven. Um, where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. There's really no point by this time, right? Jesus gave him no answer. Maybe he's too weak. Maybe he's already going into shock. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you have no power over me that wasn't given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. What is Jesus doing? He's giving Pilate the benefit of the doubt, and it gets to Pilate. Listen to what happens. From then on, fifth statement, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. I mean, Jesus, you know, it's, it's really their fault. It's not your fault. The people who handed me over to you, they're really the guilty ones. And Pilate says, I'm going to let this guy go. Right? I'm not going to be a part of this. 
from then on, or upon this is another way to translate. Some Bible, to some of your Bibles say upon this. That's another way to translate it. Upon this, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting. And here's what turns him around, right here. If you let this man go, you are no, and it's these words, friend of Caesar's. In Latin, it's the amicus Caesarum, the friend of Caesar. And this is where they get him. And let me explain. To me, this is so fascinating. Uh, The most important name that you need to know um, that's not in the New Testament is the name Sejanus. You need to know that name. Elias, S-E-J-A-N-U-S, Elias Sejanus. He had been uh, um, head of the Praetorian Guard, and then he he moved up, and he was finally... um, you know, Caesar's right-hand man. In 31 AD, Tiberius discovered that he was plotting to take over. And Sejanus was executed. In, on uh, October 8th, 31 AD, he was killed, Sejanus. Very powerful man. Here's what you need to know. Guess who got Pilate his governorship? Sejanus. Sejanus and Pilate were friends. This man who'd been executed um, had... So, so Pilate is kind of on shaky ground, right? And so when the crowd says, if you do this, you're no friend of Caesar, Pilate goes, okay. There's nothing I can do about it, right? I don't want to end up like Sejanus. So if you, if you let him go, <coughs> you're no friend of Caesar. It's going to get back to Caesar. And... Uh, um, It's not going to be good for you. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Listen, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judge's seat, a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Sorry. Here's your king. An incendiary statement, I think. Uh, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? See what he's doing? Pilate asked, and here it comes. We have no king but Caesar. The chief priests answered. We have no king but... Do you, okay, can I, have I just proven my point that Judaism is broken? <laughs> the chief priests hate Jesus so much, they're willing to say that Caesar is their only king. We have no king uh, but Caesar. The chief priest answered, finally, Pilate handed over him over to be crucified. And the, the sentence is, abis crucem, you shall mount the cross. That's the formal um, sentence. You shall mount the cross. <clears throat> so the soldiers took charge of Jesus carrying his own cross, and um, almost certainly he's not carrying the cross, the whole cross, he's carrying the cross beam. There's a scaffolding that's already been set up, uh, and he carries the cross beam, and then he's pulled up onto that uh, scaffolding. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which is Aramaic is called Golgotha. Golgoloth is the Hebrew word for skull. Calvaria is the Latin word for skull. That's where we Calvary. Calvary or Golgoloth. Um, here they crucified him. No details. None of the Gospels have any details. The, the detail about him being nailed to the cross, that's never said in the Gospels. It is never said that Jesus was nailed to the cross. After the resurrection, he shows them the wounds, and that's how we know. But John doesn't give any details about the crucifixion because he doesn't need to. His readers have seen crucifixions, right? They know know what's involved. So all it says is here they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side and Jesus in the middle. That's Isaiah 53, 12. From this point on, every single statement is fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. Someone had the question about how does Jesus fulfill the prophets? 
This is a good place to see that. The fact that he's in the middle and people are on there, he's between two criminals, that's Isaiah 53. Pilate had noticed, a notice prepared and, and fastened to the cross. This is called the titulus, the title. Um, it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, the wording is slightly different in all the Gospels. Matthew says, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. Mark says, the king of the Jews. And Luke says, this is the king of the Jews. But what they all have in common is king of the Jews. Okay? So Jesus apparently wears it around his neck as he's going to the cross so everybody knows. And then once he's crucified, they hang it over his head on the scaffolding. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, which is the common language. It's the language they brought back from Babylon. Uh, Latin, which is the official, official language of Rome, and Greek, which is sort of the, the... Everybody speaks a little bit of Greek. Everybody does. Jesus speaks, almost certainly speaks Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, don't write king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. So they've got their way. They're killing him, and that's not enough. And um, of all I don't like about Pilate, I like this enigmatic statement. He says... What I've written, I've written. I'm not going to change it. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them. So now we know how many soldiers were uh, assigned to crucify Jesus. There were four of them. Interesting, two to 600 go to arrest him, and four of them crucify, or, or oversee his, his crucifixion. I think they know they don't need a big, big uh, group of soldiers uh, to oversee the crucifixion. Um, with the undergarment remaining, now to, tomorrow uh, in the second half, um, I'm going to look at the details of the life of Jesus. We're going to talk about what he looked like, what he, what he ate, what his clothes were like. And we know that he has this seamless uh, robe underneath, this seamless garment underneath, and a mantle over that. And uh, I don't know if he'd still have his sand. He normally wore sandals. But... Um, they take the, the, the outer, the mantle, and obviously they rip it up into four pieces. Okay? But when they, the, the, his undergarment is seamless, it's very valuable, and they decided we're, we're not going to tear that up like they tore up the other one, so we're going to gamble for that. And that is a fulfillment uh, of, of, of a prophecy. Um, they gamble for my clothing. Um, the garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said. Let's decide by lot who will get it. So apparently they tore his mantle up, but they're not going to tear this up. This happened so that scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among themselves and cast lots for my clothing. And that's from the wisdom writings. Psalm 22. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, that's John's mother, Mary's cousin. No, Mary's sister, sorry. His, uh, Salome. Uh, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clophas, and Mary of Magdala. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing there, he said to his mother, here's your son. And to the disciple, here's your mother, from that time on, this disciple took him into her home. And um, Mary followed, according to pretty reliable tradition. When John goes to Ephesus, Mary goes with him, and he's holding her when she dies. That's the, Eusebius, the first collector of church histories, tells us that. So John faithfully takes care of his, uh, his aunt until, until she dies with him in Ephesus. Um, uh, John doesn't mention it, but, but in between these two passages, in between verses 27 and 28, we have the three hours of darkness. Okay, the three hours of darkness. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture might be fulfilled, so he's almost purposely fulfilling scripture, he says, I'm thirsty. Psalm 69, Psalm 22, crucifixion psalms. They gave me vinegar to drink. And that's what basically he's given drink. Soldiers drink this. It's not a punishment. It's wine that's gone bad. 
and they drink it like we drink coffee to stay up, they drink it to stay up. I mean, try drinking some wine that's gone bad sometime <laughs> and see if you don't wake up. So he says, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant. And the, the only reference we know to ancient sponges like this is, what, is that they were basically used like toilet paper. So that might have been part of the humiliation as well. They soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to his lips. That indicates he was on a high cross. They have to put it on a stick and hold it up to him. Usually people were, were crucified with their feet just barely off the ground. But Jesus apparently is up high on a scaffold. Uh, they lifted it to his lips. When he received the drink, Jesus says, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his life. Literally, he dismissed his spirit. And remember in John 10, 18, he told us that he could do that, that God had given him the power, the authority to let go his life. So no one killed Jesus. No one killed Jesus. He dismissed his spirit when the suffering was, was uh, when he'd filled, filled up the suffering, paid, totally paid the price for our, our sins. He gave up his life. Now, it was the day of preparation, so it's the day before their Passover. And the next day was to be a special Sabbath. What's the special Sabbath? It's Shabbat, and it's also Passover. So Passover, that had fallen on Sabbath. So it's a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on crosses during the Sabbath. And that's Deuteronomy. I just saw this today. That's Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23. That's in the law. Uh, when you hang someone on a tree, you're not supposed to leave them up there. Okay, so that's, that's in, the, in the Torah. They asked that uh, Pilate have, uh, to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. This is done with a heavy wooden mallet. Uh, crucifixion is basically death by exhaustion. You, Jesus has to push up on the nail in his feet to get a breath. He's hanging. And... He does that as long as he can stand the pain, and then he, he falls, and, and the weight of his body comes on his hands. So it's death by exhaustion, basically. But what happens if you break the legs, then you can, you can no longer push up, and you suffocate, basically. You're, you can't breathe anymore, and you suffocate. And apparently, the other two thieves are still alive because they break their legs. Let's, let's see. Um, Therefore, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man who'd been crucified. So he was still alive with Jesus. And then those of the other. And this was seen as merciful. This is in a world, in this world, that's being merciful. I'm going to break your legs so you'll go ahead and die. Um, wow. When they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. And that's to fulfill a prophecy that none of his bones would be broken. And that goes along with the sacrificing of the Passover lamb. When the, sacrifice, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, you don't break any of the bones. You pull it apart at the joint. Okay, so none of his bones are broken. Um, they came to Jesus. They found he was already dead. They didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers, to make sure he's, to make sure he's dead. And this word for spear, it's, the only, it's called a hapax legomena. It only happens one time in the Bible, and this is it. And I... Um, Lochain? Anyway, uh, he pierced Jesus' side with a spear, so up under the ribs, through the heart, and there was a sudden flow of blood and water. Um, maybe there's a, that pericardial sac around the heart that has fluid in it that looks like water. Some people think that's, it was that and the blood um, that, that came out. There's different theories to explain but um, this is what is so incredible. Listen to verse 35, and you tell me if this is not weird. The man who saw it is given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may have faith. Excuse me? Well, what was that? that? That was the signature of the Roman soldier who, who saw it and did it. The... The, the idea is that he's part of John's community. He becomes a follower of Jesus. 
a lot of the Roman soldiers did. And when, when that testimony is given, he basically signs off, I saw it, and this is my testimony. I know it's true, and I'm testifying that you may have faith. Is that not, would that not be incredible? Can you imagine sitting in a fellowship and see that guy over there? That's the guy who crucified him. Little old guy shovels in. See that guy? That's John. Wow. What a, <laughs> it boggles the mind. So I think that explains the, the, that odd little, uh, odd little uh, testimony. 1 John 5, 6-8 says, Three things testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. So some people say that that's, that's part of why John mentions it. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones is broken. That's Exodus 12, 46. But it's also, by the way, Psalm 34, 20. So it also comes from the Psalms. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the ones they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asks, uh, and Mark says he boldly asks. So... Joseph is identifying with a convicted criminal and asking to take the body. It's a bold thing to do. And Mark says he boldly asks to take the body. That's a big deal. So, you know, don't roll your eyes at the Pharisees. Jesus is buried by two Pharisees while everybody else is hiding. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission... He came and took the body. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. I found a little article. Uh, I, remember I told you there's references to Nicodemus in the Talmud? And I, I just thought I would read just a little bit of this to you so you can see. Um, his full name, if it's the same person, and I think it, 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 it is, his full name was Nicodemus Ben-Gurion. I'll just read it, just a couple of paragraphs. Uh, Nicodemus Ben-Gurion was a wealthy Jewish man who lived in Jerusalem in the first century. He is believed by some to be identical to the Nicodemus mentioned in the Gospel of John. Elsewhere, he is discussed in Josephus' history of the Jewish, Jewish war, and later in rabbinic works in the Lamentations Rabbah, uh, Ecclesiastes Rabbah, the Babylonian Talmud, and uh, another one that I can't pronounce... <laughs> Ben-Gurion means son of Gurion in Hebrew, and his real name was apparently Bunai, B-U-N-A-I. He acquired the nickname Nicodemus, meaning conqueror of the people, or may, by, may by my people be victorious. Nicodemus appears to have been a wealthy and respected figure, known for his holiness and generosity. He was an opponent of the zealots and of the rebellion against Rome, which led to the destruction of Jerusalem. When Vespasian became emperor, Nicodemus sought peace with the emperor's son, Titus, who was conducting the war. He agitated against the prosecution of the war by the zealots. In retaliation, they destroyed the stores of provision that he and his friends had accumulated for the use of pilgrims. And this is what uh, this, uh, the, the, the Talmud says, For the sake of three men alone, the sun shines. Moses, Joshua, and Nicodemus Ben-Gurion. So if that's the same person, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And what's my academic reason? I really want it to be that way. <laughs> okay, we're almost done. So he was accompanied by Nicodemus, uh, the man who, er, from chapter 3, the man who earlier uh, had uh, visited Jesus at night. And what they're doing as Pharisees is really incredible. If you stop thinking about it, it's preparation day. They're dealing with a dead body. It's going to take them weeks to become clean again. All the rigmarole that they have to go through to be pronounced clean. Uh, and so that's, that shows kind of where their hearts are. So yay, Nicodemus and, and uh, Joseph. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds uh, the Talmud says that Gamaliel was buried in 80 pounds. Um, but the deal is you make a bed. The reason there's so much, you make a bed of it, and you lay the body once it's wrapped in linen. You lay the body in this bed of 
these spices, and of course, as it rots and the fluids you know drain out, it soaks into that, and it supposedly helps the smell. This was in accordance, um, taking the body of Jesus, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And that's very important because it, it means it's fit to be used by a king. You notice when Jesus gets on the donkey, the, 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 the detail is given, no one had ever ridden that donkey. So it's fit to be used by a king. That speaks of his kingship. A, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid, laid Jesus there. We'll stop. Yeah, it's a lot to take in. It's a lot to take in.